Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Carry On with Carrie podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Lisa Rowbottom. Lisa is um, such a genuine and caring person. Lisa believes that everyone deserves to live an authentic and fulfilling life. Her experience is working with a variety of different clients, including those with intellectual disabilities, autism, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. For several years, Lisa has worked as a psychologist with Alberta Health Services in the mental health hospital. Today, she is now with Sojourn Wellness, um, and some of her treatment methods are surrounded around personal-centered therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindful-based approaches, EMDR, harm reduction, solution-focused. She's got so many different things that she's she's working on. Um, she helps treatment focuses with anxiety, depression, mental health diagnosed individuals, family support systems, and individuals with mental health. She works with grief, OCD, trauma, stress management, self-esteem, cl- uh, clergy and Christian counseling on request and addictions. So yeah, the list goes on. Lisa is full of so much amazing information, really. She, she's, we could talk all day. Um, and I really know, I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I always say that, but it's true. I really hope you enjoy. So sit back and now it's time to talk. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Carry On With Carrie podcast. Today I am thrilled to introduce you to my guest, Lisa Rowbottom. She is a registered psychologist, MED. Can you explain to the listeners a little bit about your background and what got you interested in this area of psychology? Okay. Um, so what really got me interested in psychology to begin with um, was a few things. So. I have adopted sisters who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I think my interest really started there because um, I really started seeing, you know, some of the differences and, and how the brain worked. And, you know, so that kind of got my interest going. And then from there, I spent a lot of, of years working with people with developmental disabilities, developmental delays, intellectual disabilities. and. That's actually probably my favorite population to work with. Okay. Um, so I was working with those individuals while I was going through my schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a master's in counseling psychology from the U of A. So the reason it's an MED is because it's out of their education department. So it ends up being oh, an I see. MED. Yep. Yeah. Um, confuses people sometimes. <laughs> um, and then after that, I started work out at Alberta Hospital. So that was kind of my first uh, psychology job there. And I was there for 10 years um, and I worked through quite a few different units. So I worked with uh, people who were resistant to treatment um, for a variety of mental illnesses. So schizophrenia, um, bipolar, the more severe versions of certain things. Um, I worked with people on the intellectual disabilities unit. Mm -hmm. And then I also worked with people on a unit that's more transitional. So they would have finished a program in one area of the hospital and would be transferred there to, you know, wait for placement or for funding or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it it gave them things to do and activities just to keep them busy. Um, And then after that, I left there after COVID. So I worked there through COVID. Um, But I had also started working here at Sojourn part-time in the evenings. Okay. And then after after COVID, I was uh, 
I was ready for a change um, because those that job does take a lot out of you. I was going to ask, like, how was that experience, especially with the um, the schizophrenia, the bipolar? Um, can you kind of give a little bit of insight as to how what the, what that atmosphere is like? Um, well, I have to say I did absolutely love my clients mm-hmm. or my patients there. Yeah. Um, you know, they were some of the most unique and interesting people. And when you really sat down with them, they had some amazing stories about, you know, traveling they'd done or what their life was like before they got sick or, um, you know, even just their perspective of the world was really interesting. And so still to this day, I think back to clients that I had and I, I miss mm-hmm. them. Oh, yeah. um, but it's... Uh, it's interesting because when you're dealing with treatment resistance, well, all of the units required a certain modification to the techniques that I use. Yeah. Um, because when you're working with intellectual disabilities, you have to make it understandable. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with treatment resistant individuals, it's um, it's kind of like water on stone okay. because it takes a long time to see any change or any movement. So you have to just keep at it and add it and add it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a psychologist, it's a challenge when you're not seeing any sort of movement. Right. Um, yeah, I can so, imagine that would be definitely sometimes discouraging. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, every once in a while, then you'd see something major happen and it'd be like, okay, this is all worthwhile. Right. You know, and then you're back and you've got, you know, stuff to give to keep going. Right. Um, I think that, you know, the atmosphere in the hospital itself, um, generally we tried to keep it as as light and as sunny as possible. Um, if you think about uh, any sort of hospital unit that you would really go to in the city, if you're visiting a loved one, you're going to the, say the Grey Nuns, there's a hospital unit there. They're very much laid out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a nurse's station, um, the different rooms off the side. Some people would end up with roommates. Some people wouldn't. It really depended on what somebody needed. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried to be as sensitive to that as possible. Right. And then they would spend their days going through programming. So there'd be breakfast in the morning and then, you know, we do groups and activities and we kind of alternated between psychological uh, treatment and more day-to-day living skills. Right. Because when you're dealing with someone with a long-term chronic illness, a lot of the times you know, they've started to lose some of those skills. Right. And so, you know, we teach them that and, you know, they had a kitchen there. So we'd go teach them how to make like, you know, eggs on toast or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Or, uh, you know, we'd we'd go out somewhere or they have little, um, little shops kind of tucked in around the, around the hospital that lets them, the patients get some work experience as well as for us to teach patients, especially the ones with uh, developmental disabilities, mm-hmm. um, to teach them to handle their money or, right. you know, how do you figure out how much you need back? So it worked both ways because mm-hmm. it let them gain some work experience as well. Right. So people that functioned a little higher or needed to add something to their resume, they could do that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, on the other side, we could teach. So, yeah, yeah so that because we were talking about that before we started recording is just a little bit of like the Hollywood misconceptions about um, facilities and yeah, and yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. How that needs to be changed. Yeah, it's nothing like you've seen in the movies at all. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't know you are not in any other hospital except that the patients are in their regular clothes. Mm-hmm. So they're not walking around in, in uh, uh, patient 
uh, scrubs and things. Right. Um, most of the staff there just dress as normal staff would. Mm-hmm. So the nurses are still in their scrubs, but um, as far as like the psychiatric aides and, and all of the other support staff, we're all just in regular day-to-day clothes. Yeah. So we didn't make distinctions that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the grounds at Alberta hospital are beautiful. Oh, they are beautiful. So yeah. we'd get out a it's lot like a and park. do that. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of walking and yeah, it's a huge, huge, almost campus. Like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I think too, like we also made space for any sort of religious practices too. So there's okay. a chaplain there. Um, and there's a chapel that people use for a variety of things. So, um, people who are practicing Muslims, they would have someone come in and do prayers. Okay. Um, there would be Catholic services and there's, you know, more just general services. Mm-hmm. And then, um, for people who are indigenous, we had spaces for them to do, um, or host a sweat lodge, oh, for okay. example. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an elder that would come up and, and visit the the patients periodically as well. So we did the best we could to connect them with whatever culture was important to them. Right. Yeah. Um, because that was making, helping them make space for themselves in the community was a big part of it mm-hmm. because they need that kind of community support and they need to feel connected. Yeah. And I, a lot of times they don't. Exactly. And if there's the spirituality, sometimes no matter in which form it takes, that mm-hmm. can make a big difference to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And just the concept of a higher power Mm -hmm. for people who are struggling with some very severe mental illnesses somehow seems to bring them some level of calm. Yeah. I mean, they're not alone, right? Mm -hmm. It gives them that feeling. Um, Now, and were you ever a part of the addictions center at Alberta Hospital? Did you? I wasn't. I wasn't part of the addiction center, Mm -hmm. but... I did do a lot of addictions work in terms of um, some of the clients or the patients on the units that I was on. Okay. Um, some of them there had pretty major drug issues, and because of where the drug use had gotten them to, they weren't necessarily able to participate in the average or the, I guess, the regular uh, addictions program, if there is right. such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they needed more specialized, individualized work. So I okay. would do that with them. I've heard that schizophrenia, things like that can be brought on Mm -hmm. by drug use. Did you see a lot of that, that you would get psychoses starting because of drug use? Yeah, absolutely. I think those were the hardest Mm -hmm. because they would become very, very ill, sometimes to the point where they couldn't carry on an understandable conversation with you. But knowing that that was not natural or... um, part of their genetic makeup, yeah. that here was a life that would would have been perfectly healthy and normal, but they, because of the choices they made to use, they used to the extent where their brain can't recover anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they would end up with substance-induced psychosis is what it's called. So basically you've got the hallucinations and the, the delusions that come with that, and then right. you get the inability to even converse mm-hmm. about anything. Um, because they can't carry a conversation and it, people lose them and it doesn't make sense. And, right. Um, and a lot of isolation because often by the time the person gets to that point, the family is exhausted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there tends to be a lot of distance between the family and the individual 
in the hospital because the family just needs a break. Right. They've gotten to that point and somebody's mm-hmm. taking care of them so they can take a step back. But yeah. in that, yeah, definitely somebody, you just don't think about those sides of it. You yeah, know? no, absolutely. And I think the thing with schizophrenia <clears throat> that you often hear, if you have the gene for schizophrenia mm-hmm. and you use, you can trigger it, even even with just marijuana. Okay. Um, But you have to have the gene. So people always say, oh, well, you know, I used and nothing's happened to me. Mm -hmm. And that's great. You don't have the gene for it. So nothing necessarily will. But because schizophrenia is heritable. Right. If somebody in your immediate family or someone in, you know, your mom's side of the family or your dad's side of the family, like your grandparents and your cousins and that has it, Mm -hmm. then it's not worth the risk. Yeah, no, no, don't even go down yeah, don't that even road. don't go there. Yeah. Because it only takes once. Right. And that's why knowing your lineage sometimes is so important to know the background and the history. And um, is, the, is there any testing for for things like that? Is, I mean, genetic testing? Genetic testing that way? I don't think we've quite got there yet. Mm-hmm. So they've started um, identifying... Uh, genetically sort of which types of medications are going to work best. Mm-hmm. So in certain hospitals or in certain situations, they can run a blood test and they can tell you this combination of medications is going to work. These ones aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we're kind of gotten that far. But the thing with um, isolating a gene to any sort of mental illness is that there's nothing that is 100% heritable. Mm-hmm. The, the closest thing we have is ADHD. It's probably the highest heritability. Okay. Um, and so, for example, like with something like autism, we can say, well, it usually passes down the male lineage. Mm-hmm. But we can't say, you know, it's this gene on this part. And so we can find it and then we can, you know, tick it off. It's mm-hmm. like probably a few different combinations. Yeah, yeah. And it's still kind of like a... Russian roulette, really, in a way, yeah. you know, yeah, without, I don't know if that's the right way to put yeah, it, but, but no, it is, yeah. it really is. If, if you have somebody, you know, who has a mental illness in your family, it is a risk. It is becoming more common knowledge. Yeah. Because it is talked about now. Right. Yeah. yeah there's a bit of a, a controversy over kind of exactly how to deliver that kind of information. Right. Um, I actually used to work with one of the individuals who was drafting or working with the government to draft some of the guidelines Mm -hmm. for marijuana usage um, before they legalized it. And, you know, there's different, different findings on different things. Like, does it, you know, actually affect the developing brain? Well, yes, we know that how bad we can't exactly agree. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, does it uh, always cause, schizophrenia to show up if you use it if you have the gene well not necessarily right so we can't that you know put out a statement that says you know marijuana causes no exactly <laughs> and it's, yeah a warning that it's yeah. a possibility oh yeah yeah and the challenge with that is if you can't at least show a, a strong correlation if not causality is that people will always notice the but sometimes it doesn't and that's where their focus is and so they yes. miss the <laughs> Yeah. And then comes the argument of, well, alcohol was legal way before. Yeah. And so oh, yeah. then there's that whole thing too, though. But, and I guess it would be an interesting thing to, I don't know if you know much about it too, but you mentioned fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah. Is there any proof as far as weed and, and any effects on babies? Um, not that we have. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can do things like, 
you know, cause premature birth. Um, right. But it's, you know, sometimes there's some anxiety stuff. But it's associated. not. Big, yeah. Yeah. It's not as bad as alcohol. Like alcohol and meth are probably the two that have been flagged as being the very worst. Like obviously cocaine is not good either. Right. <laughs> you know, but yeah. when you're talking about kind of the worst case scenarios, it is, it's usually alcohol and meth that cause that. Right. It's, it's crazy when you hear those two together. Oh yeah. And alcohol is used and it's so accepted in the society. Mm-hmm. And, but if you were to say, I do meth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting to think about because I often will talk to people who use mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about how, well, there's addictions that are socially acceptable and there are addictions that are not. Mm-hmm. You just happen to have one of the ones that are not. Right. At some point, we could have decided that meth was perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. So then you would have a socially acceptable addiction, just like when we decided alcohol was perfectly okay. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a matter of social place and social stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there's some areas that things should be seen as a little more dangerous than they are. And some things need to be seen as, you know, maybe a little less dangerous than they're portrayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, okay, I wanted to hear more about um, some of the therapies that you now offer now that you're here at Sojourn um, and a little bit about how was your transition from a, a atmosphere at Alberta Hospital to, um, this is a lovely building, by the way, and well, I get you. the chance to be here tonight. So, yeah. yeah, it's it was a transition. It took me a little while to get used to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something about going from being paid by Alberta Health Services to being paid um, privately that all of a sudden it's like there's that little bit of imposter syndrome, even though I'd been practicing for 10 years. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're paying me for this now. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I mean, I had trained in all sorts of things. Like it wasn't like I was new, but, you know, I had I had a few moments, probably about six months of that. I think I drove, uh, drove one of the other psychologists here crazy yeah. uh, for the first little bit. Um, but then it's much more hopeful. Mm-hmm. So people come in and you offer them what you can. And, you know, very rarely are you going to find one psychologist who can offer you everything. Right. You know, we all have our areas of expertise, our ways of working. Um, I always tell new clients, you know, especially if they've never seen a psychologist before, after a first session, I'll say, you know, if you decide to work with me because you need to know not every psychologist is the best fit for every client. So if I'm not the best fit for you, you know, don't walk away going, well, psychology's not for me. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it might just be, we don't click for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. so try somebody else. Right. Um, because yeah, it's a good or bad, you can have a good relationship or you just don't connect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you just don't yeah. connect or like, you know, maybe I'm more of a, more of a um, future focused, present focused psychologist and you want to work more on, you know, your past or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the direction you want to go and I'm working forward, it's not going to be a good fit. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you need someone who does more um, childhood work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as areas that I work in, um, I have a couple of things that I do. I'm I'm expanding gradually into a few others. Um, I have a pretty strong background in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. That's something that the healthcare system really likes um, because they, you know, they can kind of guess how many sessions you're going to have. And, you know, they like numbers and, you know, they want to like quantify everything. Yeah. And, yeah. So they tend to like that. So I have a bit of a, 
a bit of a stronger background in that. Um, I do really identify with the theory behind it, which mm -hmm. is very much um, your thoughts and your uh, behaviors can change your emotions, mm -hmm. but you can't actively change your own emotion. I can't just tell you to, you know, feel happy right now. Just, just go for it. Right. <laughs> you can't. No. But I could say, well, think about like your best vacation ever and tell me about what it was like. And, you know, we could really get into it mm -hmm. and your mood's going to start to shift. Or I could say, you know, go out and run around the block four times. <laughs> yeah. And your mood will start to shift because there's actually a really big correlation between mood improvement and exercise. Right. As much of as those of us who are not exercise people mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> would yeah. really like to pretend that that's not the case. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Damn um, it. <laughs> I know, hey? Um, so I, I identify with that kind of a setup. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the way that it's it starts out with some problem solving right off the bat. Because when people come in, they're very rarely, I mean, some are, but they're very rarely saying, you know, I was just thinking the other day that maybe I needed to, you know, yeah. <laughs> dig into my past and, and just find some things. <laughs> people come in with something that's presently a problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people don't have the time to dig back into things and like find the root of it right away and, and all of that. Sometimes they need like, a solution right now right you yeah know, i need something to do tomorrow mm -hmm. um so i like the cbt for that okay the only challenge is with it is that it has a lot of homework and if you don't do your homework it's not going to work mm -hmm. and you know people are not very good yeah they want to do the work here and then they, they just want to go home yeah so if you follow through and do the homework then you're going to get the benefit from it yeah. if you don't then you know, maybe you'll get some, mm -hmm. but you not get as much as you could. And what kind of homework is it really? Like, is it, it's about answering some hard questions about yourself and, yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of, you know, journaling or mm -hmm. recording your thoughts, or there's some very specifically structured worksheets right. to help you work through and rebalance your thinking um, reassess what you're thinking. It really falls into more of the logic piece. Okay. Um, because the idea, and this is something actually from a different modality that I use sometimes, is that we have a logical part of our brain and we have an emotional part of our brain. And ideally, we want to operate where both of those are involved mm -hmm. about equally. But for most of us, we get dragged over into the emotional part of our brain too far. Right. And so we need to start practicing letting our logical brain kind of pull us back towards the middle. Right. But the only way to do that is practice and practice and practice. So if I give you an exercise, you go home and you do it once and then you come back and say it didn't work. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Yeah. It's, it's changing a habit. Yeah. And pretty entrenched one. So mm -hmm. it's going to take work to, to build on that. Right. It took a while to get there. So it's going to take yeah. a little bit to get back out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I do that one. Um, I have an interest in personality disorders just in general. Okay. Um, so I've done the dialectical behavioral therapy training. Um, I'm not licensed in it, okay. but I've trained in the modality. So I use pieces of it here and there, mm -hmm. um, or I will do a lot of the program with somebody who has a diagnosed personality disorder. Right. Um, and it's very similar to cognitive behavioral therapy. It just is much more of a structured program specifically okay. for borderline personality disorders, what gets the best results. Okay. And so is there a 
like a basic kind of premise behind dialectical? Like what would be? Yeah. So a dialectic is the ability to hold two opposing concepts as true at the same time. Okay. So I can like who I am as a person and I can also know, know I need to change some things. Mm -hmm. Those can both be true, even though they're contradictory. And so what that therapy does is it starts teaching people to really um, look into their thought processes, their problem solving processes, mm -hmm. um, the automatic behaviors that they engage in and really start questioning, you know, is this helpful to me? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, behavioral components to it. Um, all of the handouts on like, you know, how to check the facts. And then it's like okay. oh, a whole bunch of questions. Um, it also starts working on um, the very black and white thinking that personality disorders in general have. Okay. And that's where your dialectic piece comes in, where it's like, it doesn't have to be either or, mm -hmm. it can be both. So you don't have to love or hate someone. You may just decide to tolerate them. Right. And so you're starting to loosen that up a bit as well. Okay. Um, it goes through four different categories. So it starts out with mindfulness and then um, it goes to um, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and then uh, interpersonal skills. Okay. So each unit targets those very specifically. Mm -hmm. um, to do the full program as it's meant to be done, you should have a therapy group as well as see an individual therapist. Okay. Um, so it's quite intensive, mm -hmm. um, but I do find the techniques in and of themselves are useful for everyday, you know, other people too, yeah. even if you don't have a personality disorder. Can you tell us what a personality disorder is? <laughs> so, oh, sure, yeah. It's, um, personality disorder is, um, it's like there's an imbalance in the individual or even just a reliance on one particular trait we do know there's a genetic a strong genetic correlation there mm -hmm. um, we used to think it was trauma related but when you really get into the research there's this strong enough genetic correlation that we're pretty sure there's something passing down okay um, but basically most of us have a variety of traits or a variety of characteristics we can switch between so, you know, let's say I have a meeting with my boss and so I can move into more of a submissive trait. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening, I'm taking in information. I'm not going to necessarily try and dominate the conversation or convince them they're wrong because I mean, this is my boss, this yeah. is what's expected. However, I could leave there. I could go to a group of people that then I supervise and I swap into a more dominant trait. So now I'm telling them what to do. I'm giving them direction. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I may go from, you know, even just uh, more of like a, a loving, caring trait to, you know, a um, tolerance mm -hmm. trait. Right. Um, you know, you can switch between humility and um, pride or self-assurance, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. depending on your situation. Right. And we have a whole collection of these that most of us switch in between every day mm -hmm. without even realizing it. We don't think about it. Yeah. But with a personality disorder, they have one dominant trait, one way of being, and mm -hmm. that's it. Okay. And so if you think about something like, say, narcissism, mm -hmm. their dominant trait is 
um, over self-confidence or arrogance, one could potentially say. Right. That's what they use to interact with the world out of all the time. Mm -hmm. And this creates all kinds of issues for them because, you know, you can't have that trait in every environment and have people be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're going to meet some, uh, definitely going to meet some conflict there. Um, And having said that, we talked about how there are those buzzwords right now, As and I've talked about this in past podcasts about, you know, narcissism is kind of a fad right now. Everybody's a narcissist. But like you said, everybody has certain traits. It's just, it's kind of nice to know you just made it very like a click right there um, in thinking, okay, well, it's a dominant trait. That's it's something somebody has all the time or more prevalent. Yeah. 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 The more that you um, interact with and work with people in that, who have that diagnosis, there's some very predictable things that you see. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with it to the point that when I sit down with somebody even if they don't tell me they're diagnosed within two sessions, I can tell you at least there's something personality uh, related because of the way they talk. Right. They're very outward focused. They're very predictable in kind of the things that are bothering them. Um, you know, in relationships, it runs a very predictable course. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes, we might talk about people being narcissists, but you know, every human characteristic occurs on a spectrum. And so we all have to have a certain amount of narcissism because otherwise we'd have a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, to apply for a job, you have to see or feel that you have the, the ability to do that job mm-hmm. or you'd never apply. That could be considered self-confidence or a version of narcissism. Right. Um, so is you, it sort of a protection then? Yeah, is to it... a degree um, for us in general, mm-hmm. it's, it's a level of self-interest. We need to keep ourselves alive and healthy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't have enough, often those are the people who are needlessly over self-sacrificing to their own detriment. Ah, uh, yes. And okay. so, you know, then you need to kind of build that up. And we have different words for it in kind of the pop culture. Like psychologists might say, yeah, that's narcissism. But we might say self-confidence okay. or confidence or, you know, um, an understanding of what your ability is. Like Mm -hmm. we have a lot of nicer words for it. Right. And there can also be um, a self-confidence and that's okay too. Are there any other buzzwords out there right now that, that you find dangerous on the internet on, sorry, on the internet, on social media? (laughs) Um, Actually, I think the one that drives me crazy, to be honest, is um, when we, they say psycho, people are psycho. Yeah. Um, They, they, tend to translate that into psychotic, Mm -hmm. but actually what they're looking for is probably, you know, psychopathological. So like a psychopath versus somebody who's psychotic Mm -hmm. because a person who's psychotic is uh, delusional or is having hallucinations. And 90% of the time, that's not what they mean, but it just, it attaches that negative correlation to people who work with those things Mm -hmm. and struggle with those things on the day to day. And they're, you know, they're not, as a rule, overall dangerous people. Right. Um, so having the two get lumped together kind of perpetuates that misunderstanding, I think. Whereas so if, can you explain a little bit what's the difference between... Oh, well... Is um, there an easy way to explain that? I, I Yeah, I think so. There's like... 
So someone who's psychotic is generally hallucinations and delusions. Okay. Um, someone who's a psychopath, you're looking at like antisocial personality disorders. So those are the people that in the most severe cases, you're hearing about serial killers and that um, they tend to be like the high end of the severe cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tend to be, you know, not interested in other people. They kind of see people as things. Right. Um, they can be, not always, but can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so getting the two crossed over it can also be dangerous, can also be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that might just be a, a pet peeve of mine, but I see that all the time yeah. and I'm just like, oh my goodness. So I want to like correct everybody. Yeah. Well, and I think that's important because it is, it is sometimes like, oh, don't be so psycho or, you know, in yeah. our language, we're being so careful around language now in, in every realm mm-hmm. of, of society. And I think also with mental health, it needs to be. Mm-hmm. started, you know, a little bit more recognition as far as what, what words we're using to describe certain yeah. things. Well, even anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we use those and even I use those on kind of a day-to-day basis. And for most of us, when we think anxiety, we think of just your day-to-day anxiety. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is then when someone's actually suffering with an anxiety disorder we assume when you say anxiety disorder, it's the same thing that I feel when I'm going to go do something new uh-huh. and I'm a little uncomfortable. And, you know, then you get the just, well, just, just push through it. Just do it. I mean, I don't understand why this is such an issue. I'm fine with my anxiety, yeah. you know, and that's very hard on people who actually have the diagnosis mm-hmm. because I mean, everyday anxiety is actually in a different part of the brain than anxiety for someone with an anxiety disorder. Okay. And so it's it's very different, but because in our vernacular, it's the same, mm-hmm. then the assumption is, well, this shouldn't be an issue for you. It's not an issue for me. Yeah, yeah. I know it's, and and how to explain that to somebody who it's not an issue for, it's, you can't. Yeah. It just, it's, that it, you only know what you know and mm-hmm. your experiences. Um, and yeah, that's like, I like that perspective. I love mm-hmm. that you put that one out there because we just don't, I know I don't think about it. Yeah. Well, we never, th- we assume that everybody's experience of reality is the same as ours. Yeah. And it really messes with your head when you start thinking it's not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's very, very different. Yeah. Um, I think the one that when I used to teach, I used to yeah. use to kind of make my students think was that, you know, the only reason we know when we look at something and it, the color we label it as say blue, mm-hmm. we all label a certain thing as blue. But because colors are waves that hit our eyes, the only reason we know that is blue is somebody taught us. Right. I could be seeing a completely different color than you. And you're labeling it as blue and I'm labeling it as blue is because somebody pointed at it and said, that's blue. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. but there's no way to know if we're seeing the same color or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, just even in that, like people's experience is so very that it's just, it's impossible to really, that's why in psychology, everything's correlation and not causality, because it's so impossible to make predictions with 100% certainty, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because people vary. And that's the fascinating part about psychology, though, Mm -hmm. is that there really is like, you're constantly learning just by people's behaviors. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess, is there more like the research coming up now as far as um, treatments and for various different things, is it, has it, is there leaps and bounds between the last 10 years and say the last 50? Or is it still just a slow and steady observation of, of 
I think it depends on your area of research because mm-hmm. there are certain areas where there have been leaps and bounds due to technology. Mm-hmm. So like let's say for phobias, we can we can work with them in ways now using virtual reality that we couldn't 10 years ago. Um, and so that opens up new areas to kind of explore as far as research goes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're looking at like the new treatment coming out for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, there's I think just one in the city right now, it's called 3MDR and it uses technology to help right now they're focusing on uh, veterans, um, but to help process PTSD experiences. Um, And again, that allows us to put in pieces such as, you know, visual images, sounds, movement that we couldn't have put in before because Mm -hmm. the technology wasn't there. Um, Even right down to now we can see things genetically better. Um, We can look at, you know, different types of medication and kind of, what does what and how they interact and you know so so those pieces are moving forward relatively quickly Mm -hmm. when it comes to the examination of human behavior in and of itself that tends to plot along at its own pace because there's well, not much change in the social structure of everything too. I, yeah. you know, now you've added in yeah. social media. I keep talking yeah. about that, but I mean, it changes, I would think all the time. Oh yeah, definitely. Surroundings. Yeah, definitely. Um, social psychology changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're looking at interactions, like even since COVID, um, pre COVID, no psychologist or very few psychologists did virtual sessions or over the phone. Right. Most of us said, well, no, we can't make that work. But then all of a sudden COVID happened and we all had to switch. Mm -hmm. And now like everybody does it. Yeah. And nobody has a a challenge with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because psychologists, just like everybody else, we're not big into change. (laughs) (laughs) But when you have to do it, you have to do it. And so we adapt. And then all of a sudden now we're doing a lot more studies and things into telepsychology, Mm -hmm. for example. Hmm. So telepsychology. Yeah. So over the phone or over Zoom. Okay. You know, okay. I just haven't heard it put that way. Before. Oh yeah, that's yeah. the, that's the in the um, official terminology for things. Right. That's what they tend to call it. But, you know, it's more like, well, is there a difference in session outcome mm-hmm. in you know in person versus you know over uh, over a medium, and prior to everybody doing psychology over a medium. Mm-hmm. There, you know, how would you ever know? There's like so few, but now you can really compare. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay. I am, I've had a few people ask me to, um, and I haven't been able to speak to anybody yet that can share a little bit about what EMDR is and mm-hmm. what are the benefits. So EMDR can actually benefit a lot of people. Um, so, Uh, EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Um, The confusing piece for some people is it doesn't actually have to be eye movement. Um, It's just when they first developed it, that's where the focus was. Mm -hmm. And so what EM, the theory behind EMDR, and we don't have an exact explanation for why it works. Mm -hmm. um, So you're not going to find one, but there's some theories. And one of them is that when something happens to us that is very traumatic, and we're talking like your big T traumas, which are, you know, sexual assaults or, or something like that, and your little T traumas. So those are things that happen to us that just hurt and we can't shake 
even if we try, for some reason they're stuck. The theory is that when our mind stores a memory, normally what happens is, if you think about it like a library, the memory comes into the front desk and the front desk sends the emotional part of the memory to one side or one area of the brain and the facts to another. Mm -hmm. And so then the emotional side gets processed and worked through and the emotion tends to diminish. And then the part of our brain that processes the information will store it away in our memory library, Okay, let's say. And so when you think to something like your best birthday ever, you remember kind of being happy, but it's mm -hmm. not as intense as when your birthday happened right. because your memory has done its job. Mm -hmm. Now, when something traumatic happens, it like it's like it all hits that front librarian at once. And that librarian goes, well, I don't know what to do with this. So it just throws it all over to the part of your brain that processes information, which has it doesn't know what to do with the emotions part mm -hmm. of it. So they just kind of get stuck in there. Yep. And so your mind's trying to, you know, store this in your memory, mm -hmm. but because the emotions are in there, it can't fit it into its bookshelf. Okay. So it just sort of throws it over its shoulder somewhere. And so you're going through life and you're experiencing and you're falling over this. So you're on the bus and all of a sudden, you know, you say, you smell something and you're triggered right back to that memory. Oh. You've just sort of fallen over it in the course of your day because mm -hmm. it's not where you need it to be. It's just kind of cluttering your floor. Yeah. And so what EMDR does is by activating the emotion and the memory and then working through the process, it will reprocess that through correctly. Okay. So that the emotion gets processed by the emotion part of your brain and then the facts get processed by the fact side of your brain. Okay. Um, and then by doing that, the emotionality of the memory diminishes a great deal and you can kind of shelve it where it needs to be and okay. you can go access it when you want to. Right. Um, so that's one of the theories behind it. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what it looks like is um, there's different protocols that you can follow to access different memories. Mm -hmm. um, but I will bring a person into session and then if we're gonna work on the EMDR, I get them to pick a memory that they want to work on something that's really standing out in their mind that really bothers them. Yeah. Um, and there's a few other more specific processes we do with that, but basically we're identifying the key memories mm -hmm. and then um, we scale the emotion associated with it. Okay. And you know, zero to 10, where would you say it is? And then we will pick perhaps a negative belief about themselves that showed up at that point. Okay. Um, and a couple other things. And then what they you get them to do is sit with both feet on the floor. So it's important that people don't aren't all crossed up because okay. you're working with uh, brain hemispheres. Oh, uh, okay. And so anything that you can use to stimulate one hemisphere of the brain and then the other mm -hmm. while they're focused on this memory and activating that emotion is going to cause reprocessing to happen. Okay. And so you can stimulate, and it sounds really impressive, but it's really not that, that difficult um, because you can stimulate uh, one side of the brain and then the other based on like interaction with one hemisphere of the body and then the other. Mm -hmm. So the eye movements, basically you're going back and forth so that the eyes move from one side all the way back to the other. Mm -hmm. um, or you can tap on one knee and then tap on the other back and forth. Um, you can use sound. Some people have a light bar that goes back and forth. Um, 
buzzers. So you okay. hold buzzers one hand and the other. Um, I prefer to use the eye movement just mm -hmm. because it tends to process faster. And I have a few other options there if something gets stuck. Right, right. So it allows for a little more variability, but it's not the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you work through a process with them, um, checking in with the memory, um, looking at the emotions, seeing where the mind goes to. Um, and there's a few different types that you can do, um, depending on your goal. And then eventually you work your way along to where the emotion has almost hit a zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that, at that point, then when they recall the memory, it doesn't, it doesn't bother them anymore. Right. And so, okay, I've experienced EMDR myself mm -hmm. and um, it's fascinating to me. And I, I, I leave each one thinking, well, what, what just happened? Mm -hmm. I don't understand yeah. this. Yeah. I get a, I get a lot of that. Yeah. Like people will just all of a sudden look at me and go, why doesn't this bother me anymore? What's going right. on? You know? Yeah. Cause your brain just does what it needs to do. It's almost like it's a, like you're trying to find it again. Like you're searching to find yeah. almost like a puzzle. Yeah. Or a maze or something. And you can't, can't go back and find that memory as well. Like you can still yeah. remember it, but yeah. Yeah. One of the things actually, interestingly, that the trainer that I went to, um, told us is that you're not supposed to do EMDR before someone who has to go to court and testify oh. because it takes the emotion out of the memory. And so when they're recounting what happens, there's not the same emotionality to it. And so the jury reads that as this wasn't as serious as it was. Yeah, interesting. And so in any sort of case like that, I always check if we're working with a big T trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll say, okay, so have you done everything you need to do with this before we actually work on the emotion? Right, because that is important. It is important if you're trying to, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And there's a few other things you can do too. Like you can kind of forward treat things. So let's say there's a, a flight phobia. Mm -hmm. um, if we can access the emotion during the session, we can work on the, the flight phobia and the expectations of the phobia. And we can diminish the emotion around that. Hmm. Um, so that, you know, you're not going to feel the same way then that you do normally when you get on the flight. Right. Um, you know, there's a few other things you can do with it. So it's not just confined to um, major traumas and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say it can be used, like you said, on many different, like almost mm -hmm. anybody could probably benefit in some degree. Oh yeah. 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 Um, you know, we look at, um, memories that are networked. And so sometimes the first memory that you're struggling with, it might be networked to things in the past mm -hmm. that, you know, you're not even aware of but your mind will take you there automatically. So the difference between EMDR and say like recovered memories, which isn't something that psychologists use anymore because there's all sorts of um, research into that not being a thing. Okay. But with this, because we're not influencing, we're not asking you to find anything, we're not even telling you what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. We're just asking, you know, what comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. And then it can be anything and sometimes you know, it ends up places where the person doesn't expect. Yeah, you don't even, sometimes you're like, how did that even come up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, and it might not even be anything important. Yeah. Or that you would have thought would be important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I really, I'm always amazed by the process mm -hmm. when someone walks out and is feeling so much better. And it's, for some people, it happens very quickly. Right. Especially if it's a recent memory. If we're dealing with, a child, mm -hmm. for example, and it's a recent memory, 
um, then it'll process quickly. If you're, you know, 80 years old and it's a memory from when you were two, it's going to take a lot more work. Interesting too. I like, and that's actually something that people should know about. If you've, if your child has been through something traumatic, mm -hmm. that's something that you could now, is there enough research behind it that, um, it stays away? Does, is there any, like, does it ever come back to the same degree or? Um, depends on who you read. There's not a lot of research saying it comes back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could, if you worked hard enough at it, reactivate it. Yeah. So like if you started dwelling on it and like intentionally bringing up how you felt and like recreating the situation in your mind, you could probably get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But most people, that's not their goal. Right. You know, their goal is to kind of put it to bed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so um, the majority of the research, as far as I'm aware, suggests that it does stay gone. Right. Um, one of the reasons I like it actually is it's one of the less painful ways of dealing with trauma because I mean, like the cognitive behavioral therapy method of dealing with trauma is to have you recount it a hundred million times. Yes. And that's hard for people. They don't like that. And sometimes people don't want to tell me everything and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to tell me everything in EMDR. It's just a snapshot of you know, what kind of represents this situation to you. Mm -hmm. um, and then you don't have to get into the nitty gritty with me. Yeah. Um, whereas with some of the more traditional therapies you do. Yeah, you're deep down into, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so is that a safe practice then for kids? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. It's just done in a different way probably. And yeah. Made, yeah. Yeah, it's done in a little different way because kids process information a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, so I've seen it done with uh, play therapy where they've put like the, I think they put the buzzers in the back of their shoes, if I remember oh, properly. Okay. And then the child was reenacting with play therapy what had happened. Right. Um, but they didn't have to like actively recount anything because when okay. you do play therapy, generally they pay, play out mm -hmm. the traumatic situation. Um, I've never done it personally because I work usually 15 and up. Okay. Um, but I do know people who do do those things. Mm -hmm. um, there. So can I just ask what, if there's a sexual assault or something that happened as a teenager, then for instance, is it something that if you again, get to right away mm -hmm. that you could really kind of nip that trauma later on and suffering with that later yeah. on in life? Yeah. That is something that you can. Yeah. There's a, something called a current events um, protocol, which is technically like recent events, mm -hmm. because it takes a while for our memories to network. So if I'm going to do a full EMDR protocol, then I'm working with a memory network that's already built. Okay. So something has happened and it's networked itself to this other thing, which networked itself to this other thing. If I get in there fast enough, then I don't have to worry about the memory network because it hasn't built yet. Right. So I can just work through the event as it happened, um, do a slightly modified version, but then that memory network doesn't build with that in it. Right. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and if I, like, I mean, honestly, unless I'd gone through my own trauma and they recommended EMDR, I wouldn't yeah. know about it. And as a parent mm -hmm. to know that that's a possibility to, to ease the pain of your child mm -hmm. or, you know, a loved one or a sister or whoever, yeah. You know, a friend, like this is what you could do to possibly take away yeah. some of that, that pain. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like any other uh, psychological therapy in terms of it doesn't necessarily work 100% of the time, Yeah. but a good chunk of the time. And a very ethical therapist is going to tell you if they're not getting in where they need to get in they're not just going to drag you through the the process right yeah if so. it's if and it, but it's just another alternative that people might yeah. not even be aware of yeah there's a lot of therapies people aren't necessarily oh, aware of definitely because you know we don't walk around saying oh by the way i can do this yeah yeah um i know for me with the emdr um i do some clinical hypnosis i'm not an expert in it by any means i was gonna ask you training. about that actually yeah. yeah i've had some training in it and so i often will use that in combination with the EMDR um, in certain certain types of situations. I found that the two of those complement each other quite well. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, interesting. I just, oh, it's so fascinating. I say this all the time. I just, every <laughs> every show I get, a, I get the chills and I just want to know more and I can just talk about it over and over and over. Um, is there any other, um, any other therapies that you could really highlight or that you would want to highlight that you found have been the most beneficial or is it just a matter of like you said depending on the situation what's the best for that that person yeah there's going to be a lot of factors Mm -hmm. as to what's um, beneficial for a person some people really enjoy psychodynamic psychotherapy and that's what you think of like the old school kind of you know, exploring your relationship with your mother. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of more Freudian almost. Is it not, always no. mom's fault? No, no, no it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the only reason to this point that it's usually mom <laughs> is because to this point in our society, mom is usually the one with the kids. Right, so right. So if you're with the kids the majority of the time, yes. then you're likely going to be the one that shows up a lot. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, you know, it's it just happens to be but um yeah some people really enjoy that because they really want to get back and dig um Mm -hmm. there's a lot of the psychologists at sojourn uh here they do eft i don't know a whole lot about it um but people find that very beneficial as well it's emotion focused therapy okay um i also do family systems therapy which is um it's a concept that when we encounter something traumatic, it's like we split off that aspect of ourselves mm-hmm. yeah, and we kind of distance it away because we don't want to deal with it. But then because that aspect of ourselves is split off from the main self, it kind of gets stuck at mm-hmm. the age that it is. Okay. And so the work is towards kind of reintegrating that aspect with the whole self. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the reason why, like, for some people, when their trauma gets triggered, all of a sudden their behavior will drop to, like, a five-year-old, and they'll start maybe tantruming or, you know, their even their their uh, verbal responses become very childlike. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, you've dropped into this age, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really useful mm-hmm. because if you think about it, we do talk about ourselves in, in parts quite often. You know, part of me wants this for supper, but part of me wants that for supper, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So it's it's different from, say, like uh, dissociative identity, which used to be multiple personality disorders. Mm-hmm. That's a very different thing. This is like, you know, it's parts of the self. It's not a different self. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I find that for some people it really connects and mm-hmm. really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so... That's, I, you bring up an interesting point because I've just started to learn about, whoops, geez. <laughs> I've just started to learn about all of that myself as far as, um, you know, 
okay, so something traumatic happens when you're 12. And is that kind of where, like, you're not stunted at that age. This is where I'm a little confused by the whole Mm-hmm. the theory behind that. Yeah. You're not stuck at that age. Mm-hmm. There's an aspect of you of that yourself. is. Yeah. And so whenever that trauma is triggered, you may slide into kind of reactions that might be, you know, associated with that age. Okay. So it might be a teenage, you know, it might be when you're a teenager and normally you're very, you know, laid back kind of person but when your trauma gets triggered all of a sudden you get really obstinate and really you know kind of rebellious like a teenager would be okay um but then when the trauma has or the trauma when the event that triggered it has passed mm-hmm. you're back to being who you are so it's not okay. like you know you're stuck at like five years old yeah yeah you know you you still grow and develop it's just this little aspect of you is isolated and kind of walled off to, to manage the trauma. Really, mm-hmm. Right. It's a safety. It's yeah. stuck back there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And then comes out when, yeah. Yeah. Whenever it's triggered or something kind of gets past your defenses, then yeah. there it is. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. So the analogy of, of EMDR when I'm describing it to people is it might be a good idea is uh, I'll tell them it's like you have this bucket of yucky stuff in the corner. And you are doing everything you can to just pretend it's not there. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to think about it. As long as it just stays in the corner, you're fine. And then I come along and I say, hey, let's bring that to the middle of the room and let's dig around in it. Let's see what we find (laughs) in all this yucky stuff. And I mean, people are like, but I don't want that. Like, I don't want to look at that again, uh, which makes sense. Mm, I mean, you just want to like, no. Um, and so sometimes there can be a little bit of a reluctance or sometimes even some anxiety because mm-hmm. I mean, who really wants to go back and look at all of those memories in any sort of detail at all? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's only a problem when they get triggered. Mm-hmm. So most of the time for most people, um, you can ignore it until it becomes an issue. Right. But, yeah. but if this helps that tr- when you get triggered and people yeah. understand that. Yeah. You can, right? you can make it go away completely or you can ignore it and it's going to jump up on you whenever it feels like yeah. it. it. Yeah. But yeah, that was a, that was an analogy hmm. that somebody, I can't remember who told me that, but I thought, what a good explanation yeah. because yeah, like, no, you don't want to look at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause it's not a tangible thing. You can't just, and I'm sure works different for everybody too yeah yeah. so there's all of those different factors yeah Um, so I asked this has been so awesome I I love the conversation and um I do want to ask a little bit about sojourn Mm. um and what what are some of the things that you guys offer here and Mm. like where we can find you and all that stuff okay um so for sojourn we offer quite a variety of things we have couples therapy we have family therapy here um, for children we have uh, therapy for individual adults Um, you know i do a little more clinical work as far as you know, let's say someone has come out of hospital and needs some community support, um, or I'll work with addictions or with certain personality disorders, just because of my background. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people that I'm kind of mentoring along in that that have an interest, okay. so they're getting much better at it. Right. Um, but, you know, we'll basically have people who will see a variety of uh a variety of individuals. Right now, we have someone for a limited time who's doing neurofeedback. Okay. Um, it's something that I'm hoping to license in kind of down the road. 
um, and it's uh, an alternative treatment for ADHD. Hmm. Um, they use it with autism, they use it with anxiety, and that's a whole nother conversation. But, yeah. um, you know, that's something that we're offering right now. And then, uh, like I said, down the road, I'm going to license in that as well. Um, we have some people that work more somatically, so that's more like with body uh, feelings and things. Mm-hmm. Um, we have people, we have quite a few that uh, work in an EFT type uh, way of looking at things. Um but we also have some that are more CBT orientated. Um, We have a variety of levels of experience here. Um, Myself and Tara are probably two of the most experienced. Okay. Um, There's a couple other, or one other, I think that has more experience than we do, but Mm -hmm. um, tend to have, uh, you know, within like newer psychologists that we're mentoring along to people who are a little more established. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got a few that used to work for Alberta Health Services. Okay. So that's helpful because they also have a knowledge of the systems. Um, yeah, which is really important, right? Yeah. yeah. And we also, um, there's certain people that will call and ask for psychologists of a certain uh, religious persuasion okay. so yeah. you know we have christians who will offer some therapy um mm-hmm. we have um someone a muslim okay. uh, a person who would offer some therapy if the spiritual consistency between the client and the therapist is really important mm-hmm. um and we do get those requests sometimes right um, that's we, actually really cool to know that yeah yeah because it, sometimes it can even just be based around spirituality oh absolutely i mean there's a bit of a difference between let's say what we would do and what someone doing more pastoral counseling would do. But Mm -hmm. if you have a shared understanding of religion or theory of the world, Mm -hmm. then you can incorporate that into the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. If you think that's something the client would be open to. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, we have that. We have one male therapist right now. Sometimes we have more, sometimes we have none, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we do have one right now. Um, And we will see um, people from with insurance claims mm-hmm. or people who are referred to us just from friends. You don't need like a doctor's referral to come see us. You can just give us a call. Okay. Um, probably the best way to do that is our website. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, sojo.ca. And there's a listing of all our psychologists, uh, what they do, kind of a little bit of a background on them, if that's it's something. It's a really that's... nice website, I have to yeah. say. Oh, well, thank you. It's easy to follow. Yeah. 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 It being intuitive. Yeah. That's one thing I learned from working for Alberta Health Services for so long is mm-hmm. their website is not intuitive in the least. At all. At all. <laughs> and so, you know, being able to appreciate that mm-hmm. is very easy to find your way around. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Sojourn has that not a lot of, not a lot of other clinics do have is that we have a front desk administration that's here for all our opening hours right and so when you phone but on the hours that we're open you're going to get somebody every time you call mm-hmm. so you're not going to get an answering machine telling you that you know we'll call you back you can call and you can book whenever we're open that's um, nice yeah yeah and our the ladies at the front desk are very good at you know okay what's kind of the basic issues they can match you with a psychologist that they think is going to mm-hmm. be able to best treat what you're concerned about um and then they'll schedule you up get you in as soon as possible put you on our wait list if you need right um so that's something that we offer that 
not a lot of other places do. Yeah, it is. It's surprising now. Hey, yeah. And it's because everything's online or it's automated that and it is nice to talk to somebody. Yeah. Well, I definitely know, um, like when I'm looking for a psychologist, because every good psychologist has a psychologist. Of course, um, yes. <laughs> when I'm looking, I tend to go towards the one where I know somebody's going to pick up mm-hmm. because I don't like just phoning and leaving random answering machine messages everywhere. Um, and that might, I mean, that might just be a me thing, but um, I'm sure there's a few other people that would like that as well, just yeah. to get it dealt with as soon as you call. Mm-hmm. Um, we do interact via email as well, but okay. we tend to, um, because psychologists, we don't check our email as often during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to route it through uh, one email address at our admin desk right. so that they don't read it. You know, it can be password protected if necessary, but they just forward it on. So then if you answer back, they can, you know, come find us and be like, hey, check your email. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets you a better response. They can get a hold of you somehow in some yeah, way. Absolutely. Um, and I guess if you're not uh, aware of where we actually are located, mm-hmm. we're in Sherwood Park, um, Alberta. So uh, just off of uh Anthony Henday and just a little off of baseline. So you don't have to actually go deep into Sherwood Park to find yeah. us, which is nice. So do you offer, and I, I often wonder this, it's great to have it in the community, but because everything can be done virtually, are, do you have clients that are not in this local area? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, so as a psychologist, we're restricted to see clients that are located in Alberta. Okay. Um, and that's just how our licensing system works, how our insurance system works. And so a lot of people think, well, if the psychologist is in Alberta, you should be able to just, you know, talk to somebody wherever, mm-hmm. yeah. which intuitively seems to make more sense. But it has to be that the client is located in Alberta. Right. And so um, as long as you're anywhere in Alberta, okay, you know, we get people that drive in here from Vegreville. We get people from, mm-hmm. you know, some of the other small towns around. Um, but I have some clients that are like say in Fort McMurray or mm-hmm. some places even a little farther north and EMDR can be done over can be done virtually yeah it definitely can mm-hmm. yeah. um depending on the practitioner it's something i'm working to master okay <laughs> to do it for, to do it uh virtually yeah. but there are people who are definitely um really good at it mm-hmm. we have several people here who do offer the EMDR um but if you're not in the uh, area to approach sojourn or if you know you're looking for something more you know virtual and we can't get you in mm-hmm. um, you want to make sure you go to the EMDR international website and you can oh. find a list of licensed practitioners because not everybody who does it is licensed ah. you need somebody who's licensed right and there's three levels of licensing there's basic and then there's um, just uh, just lost the name of the second yeah, one. But yeah. anyhow, there's like your mid-level practitioner. And they'll let you know what educated. those are. Yeah, it says behind everybody's name right. um, where they're at. So you can pick where in North America you actually want it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on uh, the Canadian one, the M, it's called MDRIA. So it's like EMDR, I think, IA, I think is how it's spelt. Okay. Um, then uh, you see all over Canada. Mm-hmm. 
and who offers. Well, yeah, and it, is that one of them that you can just get like a certification for now? Um, you have no that one. Okay, you have I hope to not. Do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that one you have to do. So you have to do a week's worth of training, mm -hmm. and then you have to take a period of time where you're supervised. Okay. And then you have to do another week's worth of training to get your basic. Right. To get your second level, you have to do a certain number of hours supervised by a consultant. Mm -hmm. So it's not a lot of additional intensive training, mm -hmm. like you're learning different techniques within it, but everything you do is supervised. Right. Um, and then you get feedback constantly. And then when they feel like you are proficient, then they send a letter to Andrea and uh, okay. you get uh, your second level. And then if you're a consultant, then you're someone who teaches. So mm -hmm. you've got like years of experience yeah. and, you know, they're the ones that are kind of, probably the highest up on the, right. the hierarchy. So, so tapping, tapping is a new thing too. And I just, I know we've been talking yeah, forever, but I, tapping um, is, is that sort of, does it in line with EMDR um, or is it a totally different? So tapping comes out of EFT, if I remember correctly, and it's actually tapping different pressure points on the body. Okay. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, in terms of like, physiological stimulation it's mm -hmm. probably the same um but it's actually like different pressure points that are supposed to um i think it has i think it's related to kind of acupuncture zones okay if i remember correctly okay. i i don't necessarily know how to do it but i know kind of of it i've mm -hmm. done some research into it um and so the idea is is that by tapping those pressure points you can release the tension within them okay some people swear by it mm -hmm. with anxiety um but you need somebody to teach you how to do it properly so you know exactly what you're aiming for mm -hmm. um one of the newer things out there right now that kind of is similar to the emdr stuff is the vagus nerve research okay so like there's different areas that you can stimulate the the vagus nerve which is the the nerve in the back of your neck mm -hmm. um that ideally causes some down regulation, some calming. Okay. Um, and I'm just starting to see that get a little more uh, prevalent um, in the last like maybe two years. Mm -hmm. But there's there's growing numbers of different types of activities you can do to help right. with the, the polyvagal theory is what it's called. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've but heard yeah. that quite a few times. Yeah. yeah. So that's newer. But yeah, so many things, so many things to talk about. But I do want to ask this question. I ask all my um, guests this question. Mm -hmm. What is one of the last best things that you do at the end of each day, every night before you go to bed? Oh, before I go to bed. Um, the last best thing I do. Well, generally my cat comes to snuggle with me. Okay. And uh, he's big and he's orange and he's fat. Oh, nice. So we're in trouble with the vet, both of us. Um <laughs> because it, it's never the cat's fault, that yeah. situation. <laughs> but um, he likes to come and sit next to me on the bed and he just sort of rolls over on his back and puts his belly in the air. And yeah. He puts his head on my shoulder and just purrs. And it's just, you know, it's just a moment of where it's like, you know, he's just perfectly happy. He's mm -hmm. got no worries, no issues. Yeah. You know, he just wants to, to be there and love you. And so that that I think is probably one of the the best things I do before bed. Yeah, and that's a lesson in being present and happy with where you're at. Yes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what is his name or her name? His name is Oliver. Oliver. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. He's got the big feet. He's got like 
20, 24 toes, I think. Oh, wow. So he's got okay. these mammoth feet and he's so clumsy. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I like that. And I love everybody's answers because they're always so different and yeah. what brings people joy and calm before they go to sleep. It's, I, I like to hear it. It's, it's awesome. Um, thank you so much again. Is, is, where can we find you on Instagram? Are, are you on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff? Uh, yes. Sojourn is on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also, we have a YouTube channel. So right. myself and Tara and a few of the other psychologists take turns putting out different types of information. Um, I have a series on there, just like a few minutes on different mental health diagnoses, um, okay. just to kind of explain them in more layman's terms, so to speak. Right. Um, the uh, Facebook, we do also have a Facebook page. Um, and so if you look up Sojourn Psychology, we'll, we'll be the one that pops up. Okay. Uh, you're looking for purple and orange. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that will be us. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much again for taking the time to share. You're a, a plethora, is that the right word, of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> And I love it. Oh, well, that's good. I hope it was helpful. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for sure. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I really appreciate the time that I spent with Lisa. She's full of so much information, as I've said a few times. Um, She's somebody that you might want to contact. She knows her stuff for sure. And she's such a caring person. Um, if you would like to give me a follow, you can follow me on Instagram at carryonwithcarry underscore podcast or on Facebook at carryonwithcarry podcast. My podcast is available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and now YouTube. My goal in this is to, to help others and you never know who it's going to affect. Um, so share and Give me your feedback. Let me know what you want to hear about. What do you think really needs to be focused on right now? Um, Or that's just important to you. I hope you all enjoy. And for now, I'm hoping we help just one person at a time. Mm